Hey, welcome to Echo by CSE SOC. I'm Anjini and I'm a first year comp sci student. And I'm Julian and I'm in my second year also doing computer science. So today's another one of our personal project showcases where we invite a current CSE student to talk about what they've been working on outside the classroom and get some insight on their experiences. Yeah, and so our guest today is Tom Kuntz, CSE SOC's very own grievance officer. Welcome, Tom. Uh, how would you Thank like you. to introduce yourself today? Um, well, hopefully some people know me around from uh, CSE SOC. Uh, some people know me from being the course admin for 1511. Uh, some people know me from being a stew rep, but I just sort of try and do as much as I can around CSE. And yeah, yeah it's good to be with you all today. Oh, it's great to have you. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so it sounds like you do a lot around, um, around uni and stuff like that. Uh, what sort of drew you to get so involved in the society? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, it sort of starts off with the fact that I'm not very good at saying no. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> I relate. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, in first year, I, I applied to be part of the um, projects uh, subcommittee. And yeah. because of some reasons, I didn't get it. But by the end of first year, I um, got asked to apply to be a projects director. Oh, wow. Um, and so I applied and got it. And I really enjoyed doing that. I really enjoyed being part of CSE SOC um, and I made some really good friends. So at the end of the year, I decided I wanted to run for something else in the exec. Um, and at that time, ARC had just decided that societies needed to have a grievance officer. And I thought that'd be a really good position for me because um, being president is a massive commitment that I wouldn't want to just do as a sort of you know half-baked thing. So um, I ran for grievance officer and I got elected and that's sort of how I got to where I am today. Yeah. Wow, it seems like you're quite busy. You're really involved in a lot of stuff. So when you do find the spare time, what do you like to find yourself doing? Um, spare time is so, sort of something where I, I have to go and look it up in the dictionary when I <laughs> um, when I find it. But um, in my spare time, I do a lot of sort of personal coding. Um, coding is strangely how I relax after a long day of coding. Um, <laughs> but I also uh, debate. Uh, so even this weekend, I was in a debating competition and I also watch a lot of Netflix. That's yeah, sort right. of most of my life. And have friends, hopefully, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Got to remember the friends part. Got to remember yeah. the friends. Yeah. Um, yeah. So today we really want to uh, talk about, um, we'll talk about projects in general, but we want to focus on, I guess, your main project for now. Is that Hopper, I believe it's called? Yes, absolutely. So um, Hopper is a project that I started working on in late 2018. Uh, and it started off as just being a sort of personal project that because something annoyed me and I decided I'd fix it. Uh, and it grew from there into being something that now a lot of the School of CSE uses uh, and to some extent the CS the School of CSE controls almost. Okay. Um, so I sort of have a relationship with them and we work together on it, which is really good. Yeah. yeah. For someone who's not familiar with what Hopper is, how would you describe it to them in like 30 seconds? Yeah, so Hopper is a queuing system basically. So... Um, at the School of CSE, we have help sessions, which let you talk to a tutor one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and it used to be that we would have a big whiteboard where you would write down your name. And then as the tutors became free, they would look on the whiteboard, cross off the next name on the list and go and talk to you. Um, so it's sort of an online version of that where you can log in, you can submit a request for help, and then tutors can see a big long list of, here's everyone who requested help. Here's what they asked for. Here's what subject they're doing. And it just gives them a little bit more context about what's going on. And then they can go through and look at the request, help them, and then resolve the request. So I mean, at its core, it's reasonably simple. So you, you saw this problem, like at first-hand experience, and you 
just went out to fix it. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. And so it's, so I sort of started this off. It was a, it was a Google sheet almost. Yeah. I find a lot of my projects start off as just Google sheets that got a little bit too big for their boots and I needed to make a different <laughs> program to do it. So, um, we just use a Google, Google form and then a Google sheet. Uh, and then we decided we want to have some more features. So we built a really simple web app to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is this something that you started off just in your class? Uh, so I started working on it over the summer at the end of 2018 okay. because we had some very, very long help sessions okay. and I sort of thought, well, we're going to need it anyway. So I'll work on it. And I probably, it was ready by sort of week three of term one of 2019. Um, so we started off using it in the help sessions that I ran and then I sort of proselytized and spread it out to other people and so now all of the first and second year subjects use it pretty much um, and then a lot of post-grad subjects and later year subjects have started using it because of um, the pandemic right okay yeah. so you started developing it from a like a tutor perspective rather than a student perspective yeah I mean, I, I didn't do it because I was getting paid for it. I didn't do it because of oh, yeah, sort no, of, yeah. it, it wasn't like I got asked to do it as a tutor. It was just that from my experience being a tutor, I saw that this was a problem and I saw that it was something I could fix. Yeah. Um, so it was a personal project, even though I was doing it because I, I knew about it from being a tutor. But one of the things I'd say is like um, some of my projects, you know, I was, I'd be working at work and I'd be like, this could be faster and I'll do something there. Or I'll be working for CSE SOC and we're trying to verify a bunch of people on Discord and I'll think this could be faster and I'll build something to do that. Okay. Um, so it's really just to like make your job easier. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's most of what programming is to me. Just <laughs> do failing faster. <laughs> and then so you can you can spend more time fixing it and trying to actually get things working, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's funny because if you looked at the sort of chart of how much time I spent working on these projects versus the amount of time that you save, it's almost certainly not a good investment of time. Um, so, but please don't let that discourage you, dear listener, because um, even though that may be the case, it's still a lot of fun to work on these projects, and it's really satisfying when you just press the button and it all works. Yeah. You're like, I don't have to change anything. It just worked. Yeah, <laughs> there's something different feeling. when it's something that you've made for yourself. Absolutely. That works. Yeah. yeah. So you talked about how it started as like a more personal project. How did that relationship with UNSW emerge? How did it start becoming something that a lot of tutorials used or help sessions? Yeah, so um, it started off because I, I just used it and I told people, hey, we're going to use this thing. And people sort of thought, oh, this is a good idea. Um, so it was very sort of organic. Um, and then as it moved through 2019, um, I got in touch with some of the people within CSE who's sort of run tutoring, uh, and they saw it and they were like, this is kind of cool. Um, and then whenever we wanted some new features, they'd let me know. And they, you know, mentioned to other people that it was a system that you could use. Um, and eventually I, I worked a little bit on it for the school directly. So getting paid a little bit for it. Um, but a lot of it, it was just me working on it in my spare time when I saw that I wanted something new and I just added it to it. Yeah. So you talked about how like you added new features because some people asked for it. What were some examples of those? Oh, um, so I'll give you a recent example um, because during the pandemic, we've had you know a lot of changes to how things worked. Originally, the idea was that you would there would be a room code that you would know you would have to type it in and then that would sort of prove that you were sitting in the room ready to get help. Um, but because obviously we're remote now, um, we've had to change things. So there's now a list of all the rooms that are open and you can choose whether a room is listed on that list or it's private. Um, and then we've also had to add features around um, better support for 
uh, for instance, you can write your email in and then we can do like a Google call to talk to you rather than having to see you in person. Um, and I've also done some experiments with a, like a little messaging system on there as well, uh, which have sort of not been too successful to date, but um, hopefully one day it'll be a thing that exists. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So like a native messaging app within Hopper. Yeah. So I mean, uh, it, it's quite simple at the moment. It's just, you know, you can send text to the other person. Um, but if it was sort of fully formed, there'd be notifications in there. So you can message someone and it'll pop up and say, oh, you've got a message from your tutor. And then you can have a quick chat. Um, and also that's kind of to help. If you can't find the student, you can send them a message and then they'll know that they're supposed to jump in the Blackboard call or whatever. Right, yeah. Do you think those features would have come about without uh, without the pandemic happening and everything changing? I, I don't think so. I think a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of what's happened recently has been, you know, because we needed it uh, and we wouldn't have needed it before. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I would say, like, the pandemic has sort of caused us to be a bit more creative about the way we solve problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of stuff has changed in the last what, term. Feels like way longer than that, but and yeah, also it's just been a term. Hey, it feels like way longer than that, and also way shorter than that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of changes um, forced on us, and we've had to be a bit creative about how we do things and um, what we're developing. But it's been a, sort of a lot of fun as well to work with those challenges and change things around a bit sure do you think some of those features could be useful now when we start returning back to in-person classes yeah i hope so um and i also what i'm really hoping is that a bunch of the classes that hadn't used it before realize oh this is really useful and sort of start to use it when they're in person as well um and i'm also to some extent hoping hoping that other schools will get wind of it and it might become a thing that gets used white more widely than just cse um but yeah we'll see um, yeah. Really quick random question. Might sure. be a bit dumb. Does the name have to do anything to do with hoppers in Minecraft? Yes. <laughs> so, so there so there are so there are two reasons why it's called that. Um and there's a little info page in the login screen if anyone's curious to read. Um originally the project was called Helps. Okay. Um which was a terrible, terrible name. And if anyone is ever naming a project, don't name it after the thing that it does. <laughs> because like like we would say, oh, log in to helps, and people would be like I'm helping people right now. What do you mean? Okay. And it would get very confusing. So I made the sort of executive decision last year. We're going to change the name. Yeah. And Hopper has two meanings. One of which is the sort of a Hopper in Minecraft, which is actually a real thing as well. Um, and it's a it's a tool where you can chuck a bunch of stuff in and it sort of plops it up out One regularly. Time. Yep. Um, it also apparently I looked this up on 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 the definition means. Uh, a, a mix of things to be done or considered, which okay. sounded kind of right. Um, but the other reason as well is because um, of a woman named Rear Admiral Grace Hopper, who was a pioneering computer scientist. And I figured it's kind of nice that you got, you know, makes sense in itself, but it's also a tribute to one of the great computer scientists. So that's sort of, yeah, that's why it's called that. That's actually very cool. I didn't expect like an actual, actual, like I was just throwing out the Minecraft thing. But yeah. <laughs> no, that's really awesome. Yeah. And sort of fittingly a bit nerdy as well. Well, exactly right. Um, I find a lot of the projects that I make have very strange and weird names. So much so that now I have to kind of restrain myself from being a little bit too crazy with the name because otherwise people are like, why did you call it that? And what does it mean? Hopper um, sounds like normal. Like yeah. any part That's really validating. Thank you. <laughs> sounds like an actual app. Yeah. Good to hear. So yeah, we also we already talked about how you updated Hopper to kind of adapt to the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. What other things do you kind of... What other activities do you go into to maintain a project like this? 
So maintaining it, um, it's actually been a bit of a, of a long road to get to where we are now. Um, as I said, we, I started off this project working by myself. I didn't really talk to the school about it. I spoke to some other tutors who were friends to sort of figure out what we wanted. I didn't even realize at the start of this project that you can run apps, like web apps from your CSE account. Oh, um, okay. So there's a really cool technique you can use, which you have to be a little bit careful with as I discovered, but um, you can run web apps just under the UNSW domain if you have the right domain. Um, so originally I didn't know this was a thing and then I discovered it. Uh, well, learned about it, I suppose. I didn't discover it. Um, but I, I used it and it worked really well for small situations. Um, we ran into a problem when, when you have 140 people connecting at the same time, it was running 140 instances of Python. And Python is not a small app. Right. Uh, so we started to cause things to break and we got lots of like crashing and there was about a month there where it was really hard to use during peak times. Uh, so... Eventually, I sort of messaged um, some people to try and figure out what was going on. Uh, and after being told very bluntly that my app did not work properly because it was being way too performance heavy, um, we changed how it ran and I got given access to another server where I started to host it. And so I hosted it there for a while and then I got given access to another server and now that's where I host it. So some of the work has just been moving it around to different places as I could find a new place to host it. Um, a lot of the work as well has been just maintaining um, the database as well. So uh, recently we had a problem with the database and I had to, you know, reconstruct everything. And that was a little bit of time I spent. Uh, and then the other thing as well is just managing people wanting to join. So people having questions. I get an email, I got an email yesterday saying, hi, Tom, can you please tell me how this thing works? And so a lot of my time spent explaining to people how it works. Yeah. Is this so this is something that you want to carry forward for the long term? Yeah, absolutely. I, I ideally what I'd hope is that it's something that sticks around even after I leave CSE. Um, and it's something that, you know, people five years later can be like, Oh, this is awesome. Yeah. How, how do you envision that handoff? Like at some point? So once you leave CSE, do you think you would still be personally developing it or maybe hand the reins over to someone else? That's a good question. Um, I'm not thinking about leaving CSE anytime really soon. I'm a third year student, but um, I'm sort of underloading a little bit. So I've got some time left, but I'll probably hand it over to somebody else. Um, I'll, so we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. That'd be really cool. Like just having this project that lives on. Like, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to say that I'm selfish, but I, I just want to have my name living on, on in CSE forever. <laughs> definitely not being selfish about that. I mean, you're already pretty involved, so yeah. safe to say maybe, yeah, like it maybe. would probably happen. Yeah, that's what we hope. Yeah. So, um, in the future, we so we know that you're not planning on leaving anytime soon. Mm -hmm. But is there any plan to kind of monetize this product? Maybe you could even bring it further than just UNSW. Yeah, I, I've certainly thought about it a little bit. Um, I'm. I don't know if it's the sort of thing where we could monetize it and whether it would be worth putting in the features to, yeah. to monetize it. And, off, and I mean, the other thing as well is it was definitely a labor of love. So it's not like I built this thing thinking I'm going to make millions of dollars from it. Yeah. Um, but it's something that, you know, if, if I heard that there was interest from somebody to use something like that, I'd probably spend some time fixing it up and I could sell it off to another school or something like that. Yeah. Um, and Or I'd just do it for free because I really love it. So who knows? And get your name out there, of course. Exactly. Absolutely right. <laughs> My name in like massive lights. I should really just put a watermark on the back of every screen saying, this thing was made by Tom Kuntz. <laughs> All credit to him. Yeah, it's like Hopper by Tom Kuntz. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right.
Right. Uh, we also started to talk more about like the technical side of things when you were mentioning mm-hmm. Python and running into issues with hosting, uh, this sort of thing. Yeah, so can you give us a very brief uh, overview of maybe like the technical details or like the languages that you've been using to implement this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on the back end, it started off using a, back in 2018, it started off using an SQLite server. Okay. Um, or sorry, SQLite database. Um, and then once we moved to hosting it on a different server, we used Postgres. So that's the database engine. Um, it uses uh, Python with the Flask framework uh, to do all of the web stuff. And then there's a thing called Flask SQL Alchemy, which does the sort of interfacing between Flask and the um, database. Uh, in front of that, you've got, there's a bunch of other little stuff that goes on in there, like some modules to do um, authentication and um, uh, some long running processes that we have. But then in front of that, you've got the front end, which is written currently in um, Vue, which is a front end framework. Uh, And it used to be just in plain JavaScript, but I got really frustrated with doing that. So I moved it over to Vue and um, it uses Bootstrap as the sort of CSS Vue, what's it called? Yeah, CSS library. Okay, that's that's quite a few layers to it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, did you know how to use those languages before you started? Um, so I knew Python for quite a while before I did, um, Hopper. So I was reasonably familiar with that and bootstrap was something that I'd used a few times before. I discovered Vue while I was looking for a solution to how terrible the JavaScript was. So Vue was something that I'd never used before I used it in Hopper. Um, I'd never managed a Postgres database before Hopper. Um, and I also, I learned a lot about all of the platforms and technologies because I'd never had to deploy a Python app to production properly where there's, you know, lots of people coming at it with, you need to keep it up basically. So there were lots of interesting little things that I learned there about um, dealing with production servers, what the correct technology was to use as a thing called Goonicorn, which I had never used before. Um, So there's lots of little things that you sort of learn about how to build a server, how to make it reliable that I've had the opportunity to learn while I've been working on this. Yeah. So what was that process like kind of learning and picking up these new tools? so a, a lot of what it was, was um, I started off with a sort of very basic, I knew I had a Flask backend. I knew how to make HTML turn up out of that. Um, there are some very basic tutorials. I'd had a little bit of experience doing it beforehand, but this was the first sort of big project that I'd worked on. Um, and then from there, every time I sort of needed something new, you go and Google it and you say, you know, I need to have a database. I need to do this other thing. And usually there's a, the first result is a Python library that does it. And then you install the Python library and then you call out to that. Uh, and hopefully there's good documentation or examples that you can use. Yeah. 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 Uh, what exactly is the process between like Python, Flask and the HTML? Oh, that's a really good question. So Python is the language in which it's written. Yeah. Flask is a library that you can install into Python. Okay. But Flask is kind of weird because instead of, it sort of turns your pro- project from just being plain Python. There's a, it has like a bunch of special things that you do to indicate that this function actually, instead of being just like a normal function, it returns a page. And so you say, um, this is a page with this path. So, you know, slash home or whatever. And then whenever you go to slash home, Flask does a bunch of stuff behind the scenes and then calls your function and you can then render some HTML or you can do some activity in the database. And then 
it will return back to you the H, uh, well, it will, you return back to Flask the HTML and then it does a bunch of stuff and it sends it off to the client. So um, Flask and Python are all sitting on the back end on my server. Um, and effectively, you as the client send a request, Flask gets it, Flask talks to your code, your code talks to Flask, and then it sends back a piece of HTML back to your client. Does that make sense? So most of it is handled by Python. So you write a bunch of Python code mm-hmm. uh, that will, I, I guess, sort of responsibly generate the HTML and CSS? Yes. Or serve up the HTML CSS? Yes. So um, Flask has a thing called Ginger, and I know I'm just piling on names here. There are so <laughs> many names. Um, but what you do is you, you write your Python function, uh, and it gets called when there's a web request that comes in. It gets told, you know, here is what the URL that was requested was. If there's a form that you just filled out, here's all the details of the form. You can then write some normal Python code and build a bunch of variables. For instance, you know, let's say the page is going to say hello world. You could make a variable called text equals hello world. Um, And at the end of your function, you return something called render template. And you give this thing a path to a HTML file. And that file has a bunch of like little holes in it. And you can say in this hole where it says text, put in the text that I just generated programmatically. Oh, right. So it sort of does a find and replace inside of your HTML file. And you can then send back a HTML file with all of the holes filled in. Does that sort of get closer to explaining it? Yeah. So in the in your app, that's useful for... So if you put in a particular like room code, Mm-hmm. It will take in that room code and know which new page to load up. Exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's I, there's a lot of documentation about how the Flask library works, um, and there are some really good starter tutorials that sort of give you a very simple you know one page example, so you can play around with just I want to see something, and then maybe you can start dynamically adding text based on what a variable is, and then you can start dealing with forms, and you can build up from a very simple app to twenty or thirty pages pretty quickly. That's definitely a lot to learn. How did you get about learning that? Was there any UNSW courses in particular that you found useful for some project like this? That's a really good question. Um, so I learned a lot for doing this from uh, Comp 1531. I got a lot of practice in Python from that, and we also used Flask quite a bit. So there was a lot of things that I didn't previously know that I learned there and then I could apply. Um, I also found Comp 2041 really useful. Um, more for the sort of administrating the server side. So um, dealing with Git, for instance, um, setting up scripts to run things continuously or to make sure that if my server goes down, it gets put back up. All those sorts of things I learned from 2041. Um, and then I've also just found all of the programming courses here really useful just as a as practice and also to force you to write good code. Um, even Hopper is somewhat messy. Uh, and you can sort of tell the error that I was writing the code in by how messy and how crazy it is. Because <laughs> you can see that as you know, I've added a new feature, I sort of learned something new so I could bring that to the table. Um, so it gets really messy, but at least I've learned new things and learned how to style my code correctly from some of the comp courses that I did. Sure. Like, yeah, and as you do more comp courses, the code for Hopper gets progressively like neater and like maybe more efficient. Exactly right. <laughs> um, except what actually happens is that some of the code gets more efficient and the code that I didn't touch from two years ago stays ugly and terrible. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things that I'm going to have to do at some point is go back through and sort of update things. But I suppose that's a, that's a good problem to have almost. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, I think actually last time Hoya Lee did mention uh, Comp One Five Three One. That's Software Fundamentals, yeah. I believe. Um, what course is Comp Two Hundred Four One? Comp Two Hundred Four One is. Um, Oh, I'm going to have to remember the name. I forgot. Software construction, and software construction and Design. I always get it confused with another course, which is called soft, Software System Design and Implementation. But um, so Comp2041 is a course that teaches you um, a little bit of Python. It teaches you a little bit of JavaScript. It teaches you a little bit of Bash. It teaches you a little bit of a bunch of different Bash commands that you can use. So it's sort of this melting pot of a bunch of different things that you get to use at once, but it's really, really useful to practice your skills on the terminal and to just get more knowledge about what tools are available and what you can do. Yeah. I'm actually taking up this term. Uh, unfortunately, they've removed like the JavaScript and Python. Oh, they have? Yeah, because I think it's trimesters now, right? I, I think that was also because now that 1531 does a little bit more, they've, oh, okay. they've, they've, they've moved around where things are taught. Yeah. Um, but one of the nice things about 2041 is it's updating quite a lot. And I think um, every time you do it, you'll learn a few different things because they've added a NetLab exercise where you need to learn something else or you'll have to do it a different way so you'll learn a different command. And there are all these nice little things that you can learn from doing the course and just having to do a particular exercise in a particular way. Yeah, and I think the course also helps you with sort of figuring things out for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, it very much gives you like a couple tools and then it, a, like a direction to investigate the tools a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's a lot to be said for just getting a lot of problems. And once you see a problem, having just enough information that you know you can solve it, but having to do a lot of research to try and figure things out. And you're almost sort of like a tree where you start off by trying to do one thing, but you branch out into little areas and you learn new different things. And that's a really great way to up your sort of level up almost. Yeah. Well, I guess that's sort of the process of developing your app as well. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the nice things about working on your own project is every time you try and do something different, you'll learn something new or you'll be like, well, that didn't work. And if that happens, then you know not to do that again. And that's really useful. Yeah. So uh, just about the process itself as well, were there just like any big obstacles with getting it off the ground? I think you did mention at some point you had to worry about scalability with different servers yeah absolutely um so a, a lot of my problems have been to just to do with like where i'm hosting it and the the performance of the sort of hosting system um i've tried to keep it on cse hardware as much as i can because if i want to the other option is that i'd either host my own thing or that i'd you know buy an azure or a, um aws instance but those things cost money and I don't want to keep paying for things after I leave the school or have to support that. So that's created some limitations for me in terms of trying to figure out with the school's 30-year-old infrastructure in some places, you know, which things do I put where and how do things work? So that's certainly been a challenge. Um, it's been interesting though and really useful for other things that I've done around the school as well. And knowing that now I can just dump a page into my home directory and send it out to people, that's quite nice. Um, but... Apart from that, other challenges that I faced, I um, there's been a, there, I had a lot of problems with how I dealt with forms, uh, like form submissions specifically. Um, and so originally I was doing that manually and I sort of cooked up my own weird way of doing forms and that got really messy and it got really annoying. So I had to migrate a lot of my code to using something called WT Forms, um, which I now use and is a little bit better. And more recently, I've learned about this thing called Marshmallow, um, 
which is something else that I've started using as well uh, and trying to replace all of the legacy code with that. So I found that quite, it's been a hurdle certainly to try and remove all of that code and keep things up to date and to learn new technologies that work well. So as you're finding these new technologies and these new tools, mm -hmm. you're just constantly updating your, your old code or is it just new functionality that you're adding? A, a little bit of both. Okay. Um, sometimes what I will find happens is that I want to add something, like I want to add a small feature. So there was a feature like filtering. Um, and so, you know, you have a long list of requests and you want to be able to say, I want to only see the people who haven't been seen yet. Um, and the way that I did everything up to that point was in plain JavaScript, I think. And I really got to the point where I was like, I could keep adding new hacks on top of this, but it's already unreadable and I don't want to like make it look like Klingon. So what I did was I said, I'm just going to get rid of it all and rebuild it in a, in a new stack in Vue. Um, so that meant that I was, I was rebuilding stuff that was already there, but with the aim of implementing something new. And it was sort of a good balance between not just redoing everything and also not just like piling new code on top of other code. And there's this thing, a concept called technical debt, which is the idea that, you know, as you work more, you accumulate this debt of having a bunch of code that's old or that's buggy or whatever. And what you want to try and do is when you get time, you pay down that debt by refactoring code, by rewriting your code so it's a little bit nicer so that then when you need to add features, you're not sort of piling on top of a mountain of, you know, broken bricks and rubble and whatever. Yeah. It's almost a little bit like sort of solving the problem or developing the app in the first place, you have a bit of something that's like taking you a lot of time and you want to create something new that sort of fixes that. Exactly right. Um, you, you sort of run into a problem and you say, well, this is going to be hard to solve. How do I reformulate my problem or reformulate what I'm doing so that it's easy to solve? Um, I think that's a problem that actually comes up quite a lot in anything you're doing, certainly in lots of different programming situations where you're looking around and saying, how do I make this easy for myself? And either you're right and it's really easy or more often you're wrong and you spend six hours hacking away at a program when you could have done it in two by doing it something else, another way. But that's okay, because you learn something. Yeah, you learn something. And I think that's the, that's the big takeaway um, because yeah, we're, we're all just learning. Exactly right. Uh, and I mean, like university is the one time when you've got, well, hopefully you have some spare time, you're not working nine to five and you could just do something cool because it seems like an interesting project. Yeah. And I really like that. Yeah. So with like a really large scale project like this, it seems like it's grown like pretty huge now. Absolutely. How do you manage all of these files and your code? So um, managing the files, I, I just use Git um, and I have a Git repository that sits um, on my GitHub. It's private at the moment, but maybe at some point we might be able to make it public. Um, and then I use a tool called pipenv to do Python file, sorry, Python um, package management. So it lets me just be like pip and shell and it automatically installs all of the Python projects or all the Python packages that I need and keeps things up to date. Um, and those are the main things that I use. I probably could do a little bit more of like continuous integration, continuous development and having some scripts that make my life easier. But mostly it's just Git sitting around doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, have you ever thought about bringing someone in to help you out? something like this yes actually i have um at the end of last year i was planning to work with another 1511 tutor um on fixing up some of the bugs that we have and adding some new features um so that didn't eventuate into actually working with him 
Uh, but I'm hopeful that at some point soon we can work together. Um, his name's Dean. He's an amazing programmer as well. And I'm keen to work with him whenever we get the chance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think well, I've learned a lot just from like talking about the technical details from a single project. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we could also talk about um, some of your other projects as well. I think uh, we can talk about how so, so, sort of something that you've done previously yeah. have sort of helped you sort of get started with something like this. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I worked on projects sort of all throughout high school um, and just random little things. So like I had a program to calculate what the like nth Fibonacci number was and I had um, programs to try and make my math homework a little bit easier. Um, but I, one of the first big projects that I worked on, just, just a personal project was a system that um, you could, when you downloaded files, it would watch my downloads folder and it would sort them. Um, which is the sort of thing where it's like, it's an excellent project because you can go as deep into it as you want, or it can just be like cool little pop up and say, which folder would you like to put this in? But that, um, really, so, so it sort of took up a lot of my time, but it was really fun to do. Um, and I still use it a little bit to this day, um, to sort some of my folders. And it used to be able to download YouTube videos as well before YouTube got really mad about people doing that. <laughs> so I don't do that anymore, but, um, Yeah. That was sort of one of the early projects that I worked on that gave me a little bit of the background in Python and a little bit of the background in um, just dealing with files. Um, that's sort of the earliest thing that I worked on. Um, moving forward a little bit, I also, um, I joined a project that was a um, open source project online um, for an old card game that I used to play. Uh, and that meant that I was working with people who are like international and who were actual software developers. So I was in what, year 11 or year 12 at the time, but it meant that I was talking to people who knew what they were talking about. And I was looking at code that was written by somebody who knew what they were doing. And, and, and the first thing I ever did, I think, was change one line of HTML. And it was like this massive code base. And I spent hours just looking for the right line of HTML to change, to change this one thing. But I found it and I changed it. And in the process of looking through that, I learned a lot about how the code was structured. So then I did something a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And by the end, I think I implemented, you know, a few new files to, I don't remember what I was doing at the time, but something interesting. Um, and it sort of was a great progression from, I just changed the line of HTML to now I understand this project well enough that I can add features properly. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that you, you started coding in high school. What was your first experience of programming then? Oh, my, so my first experience of programming um, was if you can call it programming, I suppose, uh, being about seven or eight and trying to rename the Firefox icon on the desktop to be a batch script that would pop up and say, you've been hacked and then shut the computer down. <laughs> um, that was my attempt at being a leap hacker at age eight. Um, and then I didn't do a lot more programming uh, from that until I was like 11 or 12 or something uh, when I learned how to make Minecraft mods. Uh, and I made a lot of very bad Minecraft mods or half-finished Minecraft mods. Um, and then when I got to high school, I was working on, um, I, I went to a sort of programming club and I learned Python there. And that's sort of when I really started seriously programming because before that, all I was doing was copying and pasting code, really. Like I wasn't programming per se, <laughs> but um, I learned how to program in Python. And then a little bit after that, I learned some other languages and I did this thing called the AIO, which is a programming competition in high school. Um, so by the time I got through that and I got to year 12, I kind of knew, cool, I want to do programming. I enjoy doing this. Um, but it does mean that like, 
I, I had a little bit of a head start where other people might not have. Um, but one of the things is I think that I was also somewhat unlucky that I started early because I um, started off with a bunch of like random bad habits and a bunch of things where I only knew like little bits and pieces. Um, one of the nice things about coming into a course like 1531 was it meant that I um, I could forget everything that I learned and learn it properly and learn it from the basics and be told these are the things that you absolutely need to know. And I learned a lot of good habits from doing that. Um, so that was really useful. Yeah, so at uni, I guess you're learning more of the fundamentals in a much more structured way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot of it is also just like uni gives you the opportunity to go back and be given a piece of code that you know is good and have, and then make changes to it and be told those changes were good or, you know, your style was terrible, do something better. And it almost forces you to go back and do things properly rather than just like writing really hacky little scripts. Um so I found uni really useful for that purpose, but I know a lot of people who, if you don't come in with a lot of programming experience, what you're learning is you get the fundamentals straight away and you're learning all these good habits without having to like beat the bad habits out of you, which is quite nice. <laughs> um, yeah. So previously, like before we started talking today, I mm -hmm. think we, we've already taken a look at your GitHub. We've done a bit of stalking. Okay. And we know that there's some tools that you've been working on, mm -hmm. like GDB and Valhalla, I believe it's called. Yes. yes. Can you talk a bit more about those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so those are sort of slightly more recent projects. Um, I, I, I listened to the last podcast uh, when Hoya was talking about how he works sort of during the exam season. Yeah. I have to admit that I also do that. And I can categorize my projects by which exam I was procrastinating for. Um, so those projects I was working on at the end of 19T1. Um, I was really annoyed by um, how, you know, so we've got DCC in 1511, which is a compiler that gives you really nice error messages. And then you sort of go out into the rest of the world and you don't get those nice error messages and you get really strange problems. Uh, so there are two tools, uh, one's called GDB and one's called Valgrind. Um, and they let you look at your code, find memory leaks, step through your code um, step by step, basically. And those are really nice things to have, except you go from a really nice user interface with DCC where it gives you colored errors and those sorts of things to um, GDB, which is here's a prompt, hope that you know how to use it. If not, lol, sorry. Um, so I built these two tools. One's called GDB tools, which is a collection of things that just make GDB a little bit nicer. So it adds, um, you can always see what location you're at in your code. It gives you a list of commands that you can run so that you know what you're supposed to do. Um, it lets you type a comment in your code to say, put a breakpoint here. And when you load your code into GDB, it will automatically put that breakpoint in, which is quite useful for if you always want to stop at line 20 of your code, instead of having to type B space 20, you can put a comment in and it will always stop the program at line 20. Um, so that was uh, GDB tools. And then Valhalla is... Valgrind, but I sort of take Valgrind and look at its output and then reformat it to be a lot more clear about what's going on. And it gives you colored errors that actually are sensible. So um, both of those tools were built because I got really annoyed with GDB and <laughs> Valgrind and either using it myself or showing it to other people. So I built those to make things a little bit easier. How did you make these tools? So um, both of them are Python scripts. And uh, basically what happens is you run the Python script and the first thing that the Python script does is it 
adds a bunch of extra options to what you told it. And it then reruns itself. For instance, it runs Valgrind. Um, so it will run Valgrind. And sort of at the end of that, it stores all of the output that Valgrind told it and then looks through that and makes a bunch of changes. Um, so Valhalla, all it does is it just says run Valgrind. Cool, I've got the output. Reformat the output, um, which is a lot of just replacing strings and trying to find different elements in the output to make them bold or whatever. Um, GDB tools, turns out that GDB has a interface to Python. And this is really common if you've used Python a lot where you'll find something and you'd be like, oh, there's a library that does it. <laughs> so you can import GDB uh, and you can provide little hooks and scripts to say, whenever the person does this, run this piece of code. Um, so for instance, you know, whenever the user types in the command, at the end of that, print out the list of all the commands that they can run and show where you are in the code. So there are lots of little things like that that you can do. So you're essentially running a Python app. It's just running the GDB or Valgrind within it. Uh, so for Valgrind, it runs within the Python app. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, for GDB, it GDB kind of calls out to the app occasionally and says, um, hey, app, please run this thing. And then the app says, here you go. Um, so that one is a very sort of like Valgrind is running inside the program. I get to control what Valgrind does. I decide what happens to Valgrind. Um, and then for GDB, it's more just like whenever GDB wants to do something, it tells me and I do something back. That's actually really cool. And um, something that I would find super useful because I'm actually just using GDB for the first time and like having something to just like automatically put breakpoints in for you would be so good. Yeah, one of, one of the reasons why I thought this might be an interesting thing to, to mention, uh, and I'm glad that you brought it up, is because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who are doing 2521 or and playing around with that might be a, an interesting thing to do. Yeah. So, yeah, how about it? Yeah, so if someone wants to use it, how should they go about using it? Uh, well, they can go to my GitHub, github.com slash tfpk, and then one of the projects that's listed there is called Valhalla, and there's another one called GDB Tools. There should be installation instructions. And as soon as I go home, I'm going to make sure that there are installation instructions. <laughs> uh, I can guarantee you that much. Going to get an uh, influx of people using these now. <laughs> hopefully. Um, you know, chuck us a like, follow, and subscribe or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Um, before this, did you go about like promoting uh, Valhalla or GDB tools? So I tried to get them put into this, uh, into course resources. Yeah. Um, I haven't had much success with it, though. And so I've, I've, I've like in help sessions, I'll occasionally use the tool because I want to do something and be like, oh, look, you can do this instead. Um, but mostly they've just been sitting around waiting for somebody to come along and use them and show them some love. So I haven't done that much promotion. Damn, why don't they let you put it into course resources? That's an excellent question. <laughs> uh, I, the actual reason is like, the, to be fair, it's not perfect yet. And if okay. it broke, it would be very confusing. Um, but it's close enough that I'm curious to see what people think. And then maybe if it works out, we'll start using it. Who knows? So it could almost develop a little bit like Hopper where yeah, absolutely. they want more features. They want, they want like a more well-rounded or like, uh, I guess if they believe trust in its reliability. Exactly. Yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. And this is, this is one of the things like you, you think, Oh, my, my program is going to be done after I do this thing. And then you do the thing and you're like, wouldn't it be nice if dot, dot, dot. And then that's how you lose the next 10 years of your life. Um, it's a really common thing. And it's kind of what I like about it as well, is that you never know what you're going to need next. And you're always going to learn something new from working on one of these projects. Are you continually working on this one as well? Um, I haven't worked on them that recently. 
but whenever somebody tells me that something's broken, I'll go in and fix it. Or whenever I sort of have an idea, I'll write it down on my list of ideas and say, oh, I should do that someday. Um, but most of my projects, I sort of come back to occasionally and do something with. Where do you find the time to do to like balance? Because it sounds like you have quite a few like fairly large scale almost projects going on. How do you allocate time to work on which one and when? So I have a big list of all of the things that I want to do. Um, and the list of projects that I've currently worked on is a very small subset of that list. Um, but whenever I get like a spare hour or, um, you know, I finish an assignment or I'm procrastinating for an exam, sorry, I mean, studying for an exam, <laughs> um, I'll look at the list and I'll say what, what seems interesting uh, and I'll start doing something. Um, a lot of the time what happens is I start doing something and I get a little bit of the way there and I'm like, this isn't really that interesting. So I stop. Um, but sometimes, you know, I've seen a need for me to do something and I'll do it and then people like it and it's like, okay, cool. We can keep it going. And then we can maybe add some more features and people want stuff. I'll add it. Um, a lot of what happens is just like somebody says that they want something or I can be like, Oh, I could write something to do that. And I'll just do it. Yeah. Yeah. So you've definitely worked on like a lot of projects and you kind of touched on this, but what's your personal motivation behind doing all of these projects and just getting to work on so many, so many different tools? I, th I think that the biggest thing for me is that it's just like, I see something that I could do much easier and I want to save myself time. Um, and I have just sort of blocked out mentally the fact that I know it's almost certainly going to take more time to work on these projects than it will uh, the time saving. But I'm just really hooked on that feeling of like, I did something, it works. You know, you can do this fast now because I made something. I really love seeing that and I like being able to help other people with that as well. That's really interesting to me as well, because I think we often hear about personal projects in the context of, oh, if you want a job, this is what help, will help you stand out. But for you, it sounds like that's not really the consideration at all. I, I think I think one of the things is like, if you, if, if you work on personal projects because you want to, or because you see the value in them helping you, like the motivation behind them is what's going to get you the job, right? It's not like you walk into the building of, you know, Google or Facebook and say, hi, I'd like a job. And they just say, what are your projects? Like, you can be like, I'm really motivated to do whatever it is that is interesting or is relevant. And then that sort of, um, and I suppose it's not almost like because you've made the project, but it's because you have the willingness to make a project to fix something. That really makes to me sense for like what they'd be hiring for. Have you had any experience yourself with like um, going for internships or jobs right now? So, um, I had a job for about two years. I was working at a company called Kinesis where we built sort of environmental consultancy tools, um, which was really, really interesting. And I loved working there. Um, recently, because my uni schedule got really busy, I um, left. I haven't technically left. I'm sort of still there, but I don't do any work for this term at least. Okay. Um, but I've had, I've had experience working there certainly uh, and getting a job there, but uh, I haven't had a lot of experience going out into sort of like big tech company interviews yet. Uh, that's something I'd like to do at some point, but especially because trimesters mean that sort of the time that you have to do those interviews is, or to do those internships is shortened. Yeah. I haven't really been focusing on that as much, but hopefully when I sort of get closer to graduating and that sort of fear starts setting in of like, am I going to have a job? <laughs> then I'll start going out and finding some internships um, and I'll come back to report on how that goes. Yeah. But I guess when you were going out to get your job at Kinesis, was that, I guess, the motivation that you talked about that you had to 
do all those projects for yourself, that sort of reflected in the way that you presented yourself in getting the job? So I, I think the the way that I got that job at Kinesis was I, um, in fact, my old maths teacher um, knew somebody and had a connection. And so um, I got an internship, I got an interview there. Yep. Um, but the way that that worked out was because he knew that I was really passionate. I, well, I think it's because I, he knew I was passionate about um, working on these sorts of projects and being interested in doing stuff. And also to some extent, because I had some experience with Python and those sorts of things already because I'd been working on those personal projects. And that's kind of how it worked out. I eventually got a job there. Just quickly, yeah. um, I don't think I, oh, I made a mental note to talk about this, but about uh, projects, CSE self projects, what's mm-hmm. that like? I think you mentioned you apply, you ended up being a team lead for that? Uh, so I ended up being the director for that. Oh, director. Um, so it was sort of a, a different role to what I was expecting. Um, I, I originally sort of imagined it would be like being a team lead. Um, but the way it ended up, I was sort of help, helping the team leads. I don't want to say that because they were doing a lot more of the work than I was in any one project. Um, but sort of organizing things for the teams so that they had an environment, you know, where they could succeed. Um, I did some of the interviewing for like the people for team leads and also for team members um, and then organizing events and those sorts of things. So being the software projects um, director meant that more what I was doing was a managerial role really. Um, But it meant that I got to see a lot of people working on projects um, and work with some really good team leads who were helping their team members do great things. Yeah. Would you say that was sort of, even having like a broader overview, did that help with your own projects? I think the thing that I learned most from being part of that was some of the things that I learned from the team leads about uh, how they wanted to build software, um, some of the processes that they used, uh, even things like I did not know how Docker worked before I had to deal with it with um, CSE SOC projects. Uh, And I now have a much better understanding of how Docker works. So So what is Docker? So Docker is a tool that um, lets you basically say, I would like to base my project on a project that somebody else worked on from the internet. So for instance, um, you can say, I want to base my project on a Linux environment. And then you can say, follow these commands to get from that thing on the internet to the thing that I want set up. So for instance, you say, um, base this on the latest version of Ubuntu and then download all of these um, Python projects, install all of these uh, libraries, um, run this app and then you put all this into what's called a docker file and then you can use docker run blah 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 and it will read that file download off the internet ubuntu uh run all the commands inside a little container almost like a little virtual machine kind of virtual computer um and what you end up with is a server that is running in its own little world where everything is nicely perfect for it even if the rest of the world is chaos um so Docker is a really useful tool for that. It's kind. There's a lot of options and a lot of stuff to learn. So more for like testing, I think? It's for testing and also if you want to, in production even, yeah. you can have a Docker container so that you know you always have the right dependencies and all the right things installed and oh, always yeah. installs in the same way. And even what you can do is if you accidentally kill a Docker container, you just restart it and rerun the same process again and it will just pretend that nothing happened because it's in the same environment and it will sort of work the same as it was working before. Yeah. So is that something you're using in Hopper? It's something I would like to use in Hopper because I just know how terrible my sort of like 
um, development operations sort of system is. My, my system is literally git pull, restart the server, enter. Um, <laughs> whereas what I probably should be doing is having a system like Docker, but it's something that the um, software projects at CSESOC use. So that's sort of where I got a lot of experience with it. You've definitely had a lot of experience with these different projects. Is there any advice that you can give to other students that are maybe wanting to start their own, they don't know where to find the inspiration or are currently in that kind of difficult process? Yeah. Um, so the, the sort of advice that I would start off with is it doesn't matter how terribly you're doing it. It doesn't matter if you're not sure about how to do it. It doesn't matter. Like all of these reservations that you might have about whether you're able to do it or not do not matter at all. What matters is like, just get started, try and find something, try and figure out, you know, a really small idea that you can just get started on some, something to, to just get hold of and work on that. Um, that's sort of the first thing I'd say. Um, the second thing is if you are looking to go out and you learn a new language, learn either JavaScript or Python. JavaScript because it lets you build web apps, which means that you can build, you know, calculators and things that are visual and interesting. Um, and Python because there are a bunch of libraries and it's quite easy to learn. So you can do a lot of stuff really quickly. Um, the third thing that I'd say is the best places to get started on projects are projects that involve files. So things like my downloaded sorter thing, you can do that reasonably easy um, because all you're doing is, you know, whenever there's a file, make a big while loop that says, you know, while I'm, while I'm looking for more files and then you can learn how to move around files and rename files and look for a particular thing in the name. Um, so files are really easy. Building websites um, can be difficult but if you're a CSE student listening to this, you automatically have web hosting. So you can put a HTML file uh, in a specific spot in your home directory, and um, you can then go online and access that file, which means that you can start doing web dev and link people to your own personal website straight away. You don't need to deal with like, you know, going onto Azure or web, um, I was about to say WebCMS, what's it called? Um, AWS. Right. Um, you don't need to deal with all these big problems. So going onto the web can be really useful. Um, and then also the other thing is um, I've seen projects that use email a lot and email is reasonably easy to get started with in terms of either sending emails or receiving emails. Um, so you can write things that sort your inbox or send an email to yourself. One of the things that I've wanted to work on for a long time and have never had the chance to is a system to email, email myself every week with what bins need to go out that week. Because <laughs> I always forget and I have to go and look it up. So even a pro problem as simple as that, you can build a little script that does it and that tells you, um, and that's probably a small enough and tract tractable enough problem that you can do something with it. Sure. Well, yeah, if there's anyone out there who wants to get started, think of a way to figure out what bins need to be taken out. Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to steal my idea. And if you manage to make it, please message it to me because I'm sure it's going to save me a lot of hassle. <laughs> um, yeah. And also, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this web hosting thing. Sure. I've never actually heard about this. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that I have an article on my website that explains how to do it. Um, you can go to tfpk.io and there's a blog section and one of the blogs is about it. Um, but I'm sure we can also link to that or something. Yeah. Um, basically what you do is you make a directory in your home directory called public underscore HTML and anything in that directory, as long as the permissions are set up correctly, can be read by going to web.cse.unsw.edu.au slash tilde z123456767, whatever your ID is. You go to that website and whatever you put in that directory will be there. 
So for instance, if you wanted to um, put in like just like a simple HTML web page to just sort of practice HTML, you can put something there. Um, if you wanted to build a simple web app to, for instance, time exams, which is another thing that I made really quickly because I needed that, um, you can put something in there to do that. Um, there's also a thing called CGI, which is how Hopper originally started working. CGI lets you make a web request and instead of the web request returning an HTML file, it runs a program and the result of that program is returned to you. So you can run a program and if that program spits out HTML, then you get back a website. Um, you can use that as well to do some more complicated sort of interactive things. Um, I wouldn't recommend playing around with that straight away only because it's kind of arcane and 30 years old. Yeah. Um, it's how things used to work back before we had web servers. Um, but it's interesting and useful and you can play around with it. I don't think actually, uh, well, in uni, there's no courses that really teach you HTML or CSS, is there? Um, so you'll learn a little bit of it in 1531. You'll see it at least and okay. you get exposed to it. Um, there is a new course coming soon. I'm not exactly sure when it's coming, but it'll be about front-end web dev. Um yeah, I heard that was going to be in T3, so, actually. It's actually out, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's in T3. Um, I've forgotten what the course code is, which is really terrible. 6080. 6080, that's it. But there's um, a huge wait list. So there is a large wait list, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but that might be a good course to investigate if you're looking to learn a little bit more about front-end stuff. The other thing as well is that um, front-end, especially just like working with HTML, you can start by learning to copy and paste. Um, what you do is you find a website that teaches you how to do buttons or text or whatever, copy, paste, change what you want. You'll make some terrible looking websites, but you will get a lot of experience and you will get better at it. Um, and so I still, most of what I'm doing when I'm programming a front-end website, because I'm not a front-end developer by any means, I go and look up bootstrap documentation and then it's an example of here's how you do a button, copy, paste. <laughs> like um, I could have a, you know, Control C and V as the only keys on my keyboard, and that would probably get me through about half of what I'm doing when I'm doing front end work. Um, but that's I mean, that's the way to get started, I think. Yeah. When do you think would be the best time for students to start working on their projects? Then, even though you said just just get started, is there any right before exams? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, did I just say that? I meant to say any time except right before exams. Um, look, you've got holidays. And those holidays can be really useful to work on a little project. Um, so if you're waiting for an excuse, the first day of holidays is probably a good time. But also, like, just set aside an hour, you know, on the weekend or a few hours on the weekend, decide on a problem that you want to solve and just, like, start hacking at it. I, I, I don't want to say, you know, like, oh, you should wait until a specific time. Maybe you should wait until you've finished 1511 if you've got no programming experience. But even then... If you have enough time left in your week that after you've done 1511 and Math 1A and whatever else, if you've got a few hours left, you can start learning a different programming language. And what you will inevitably find is that learning that language helps you with 1511 as well. Um, so if I don't know if your parents are coming in and asking you, why are you not working on 1511? First of all, why are your parents asking you that? But second of all, <laughs> um, you could you can say, you know, this is going to help me because yeah. learning another language it's kind of like how learning a second language, like a human language, helps you speak the first language because you learn what the differences are between the languages and you learn the thinking that goes behind it. So I would definitely suggest um, uh, just start straight away if you can. Yeah. 
Oh, well, that's, I think, great advice for anyone who doesn't really know uh, where to start. And is there anything, like any last words that you want to leave for our listeners? Yeah, so this is going to be me sort of spruiking for CSE stock a little bit. Um, But around CSE, there are lots of places that you can go if you want support and help. Um, CSE SOC has its software projects, which is if you don't know what to start on uh, at the start of next year, I believe is when they're next taking applications, you can go and apply to work on a project with somebody who's probably more experienced than you and you'll get some experience working on a real project. And that's one of the things that for me really helped to work on a project with other people who knew what they were doing. Um, as well as that, if you post on the CSE SOC Facebook group or you are in you know, one of your subject chats or something like that, you can probably ask for help with something or see if there's anyone in there who can give you a hand. I mean, more times than not, somebody might be able to help you. Um, and even then, you know, if you're in class and you've got some spare time at the end of a lab, you, know, you can talk to your tutor and say, hey, I'm working on this thing or ask them for some advice or ask them how they got started on any projects that they're working on. More times than not, people around here are going to be able to be really helpful to you. So just feel free to ask. And if you find me around or you want to send me a Facebook message, I'm probably going to regret saying this, but you can send me a message as well. I'm happy to give you a hand. Uh, in the end, the, the day after the podcast get released and then you're... It's just message after message after message. But I suppose that'd be really good for you guys because this pod, uh, podcast series is awesome. So um, you get lots of listeners. Um, cool. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that concludes our personal project showcase. Thank you, Tom. And I hope that everyone here took away something interesting. And we're always on the lookout for more student projects. So if you've got something exciting that you're working on, please get in touch with us through the email on the CCSoft media page. And yeah, so thank you, Tom, for joining us. It thank was you very much. really a pleasure to, to listen to your advice and learn more about your projects. Thank you.